0: Jimmy John, my buddy Kevin Harvard called me out for the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. I accept and I hope it brings you good luck this weekend in Michigan. I nominate my pals Guy Fieri, Drew Brees, and Clint Boyer. Peace! (laughs) Jimmy John's Freaky Fresh,
1: Freaky Fast. Greetings, Screedlers. This week's episode of Humor and the Abject is brought to you by Jimmy John's Freaky Fast and Freaky Fresh Sandoz. O. M. Fucking. G. Yummy 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 I got Jimmy John's in my tummy and I'm ready to see the mummy in theaters. This episode is also brought to you by Wage Theft. Historically this has meant an employer withholding earnings due to an employee. But since it's 2017 and everybody is a socialist now, the script has been flipped. Nali 360 flipped. You might say. In the circles that I travel. Wage theft, previously called employee theft, means dicking your ass off at work on the company dollar or the company looney if you're in Canada. Take a look at Twitter for 6 hours. Watch some CKY clips on YouTube. Join Darcy Wilder's Slack channel. Listen to this podcast. Anything to keep you from moving forward the profits of the butt baby tyrant small business owner who is. Asterisk Italian chef kissing fingers asterisk. One elegant Chauncey Throw a wrench into the cogs. Imagine that you have a bone to pick with capitalism. And a few to break. Eat Jimmy John's. In street went down first game
0: soon. Everybody Welcome back, everybody, to Humor in the Abject, the podcast. This is episode three. And as we kick things off, I do want to remind all of my listeners that the artist Dustin Yellen was in the band Rancid. Uh, Last week, I'd recommended a few shows that you should check out, one of which has very recently closed. That's David Kennedy Cutler's One to One at Derek Eller Gallery. If you missed it, please go to humorintheabject.com. I did write a review of it. It was wonderful, and there's a lot of documentation from the exhibition there, so you can catch it. Uh, Also, coming up this week, Sari Archive, the curatorial collaborative, has an opening reception at Java Projects in Greenpoint from 7 to 10 p.m. That's this Friday, June 30th. The exhibition is called Astral Oil, Global Family. It's got new work by Jonathan Durham and Ryndon Johnson. And don't forget to head out to last week's guest, Amy Zimmer's Monthly at New Women's Space. That was fantastic. That's going to be Thursday, June 29th at 8pm, featuring Eudora Peterson, Lena Einbinder, John Early, Julio Torres, and this week's guest, Anna Fabrega. Uh, I first met Anna, I guess a few years ago at this point, at an open mic that I was hosting. We talk about that a little bit on this episode. I've been following her comedy ever since and counted her as a great friend. We put out her first book, The Truth About Pangea, in 2015 on my label Social Malpractice, and we just published the sequel this past May, The Truth About Pangea 2. Both of those are available on socialmalpractice.com if you care to purchase one. Uh, Anna has been on The Chris Gethard Show, Portlandia, The Special Without Brett Davis, The Jim Gaffigan Show, and writes and stars in the web series Jana and Shasta with comedian Ryan Bennett. Her monthly Sundays with Anna happens at Star Bar in Bushwick. The next one is coming up on July 2nd. Through my friendship with Anna, I've had the opportunity to meet so many amazing comedians and performers, and it is a real distinct honor to have her on the podcast today. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Anna Fabrega. I'm going
2: to talk shit. Is this being publicly released?
0: Uh... No, it's just for my own. I'm, oh, I'm okay, just going yeah. <laughs> to listen to it on my iPhone. Can you
2: imagine to... if someone invites you to do their podcast and it's like just for them?
0: It's a private pod, yeah, yeah. just for their own ears. <laughs> I like that, though. You just put it in your iTunes on your phone and listen to it.
2: That's so funny.
0: Um, so, Anna, welcome to Humor in the Abject. How have you been? What's I, new?
2: I've been good. I'm, uh, I started a new job Yeah. on Monday, commuting to an office, which I haven't done in three years.
0: What area of the city is it located in?
2: It's in Manhattan in Midtown, um, near Bryant Park.
0: Okay. What train are you taking?
2: I'm taking the L Mm -hmm. to 14th Street.
0: I do that in the morning. And
2: 3rd, and then walking to 37th in Madison.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, you take it to 3rd. I go to Union Square, and then I switch to the N, and then I get back on the train and go back to Brooklyn. Oh. It's pretty... I'm sorry. It's a pretty frustrating commute. Yeah, I
2: wanted, I mean, I could take the six up, but I really want to avoid rush hour commute. And the weather's nice, so I'll walk.
0: Was that 20 blocks or something? 23? Yeah. That's pretty good.
2: That's good. You know, because then I sit all day, so I'm trying to make sure I don't, you know, disintegrate.
0: It's fun, though. The job is fun? Yeah. Or the walk?
2: Both. Both.
0: Both. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, you don't have to talk about what you're doing if you don't want to talk. Oh no,
2: it. I can talk about it. I'm writing for the Chris Gethard show.
0: Really? Mm-hmm. That's a great job.
2: Yeah, it's very fun.
0: That's really cool. Yeah. So you just hang out with other comedians all day and kind of like pitch and.
2: Yeah, for the most part. I mean, we're in pre-production right now because it's going to be a live show. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the first six weeks, you know, at least so far this week, it's been you know, pitching ideas for episodes, for, like, one-off videos, for live pieces, things like that. And as we get closer to production and we know, okay, what actually, like, each episode will be, then it'll be a lot more, I think, involved than right now when it's like, okay, well, what if we did an episode where, like, this happened, Mm -hmm. you know? So we'll see how it goes, but it's, I'm excited. It's my first, like, long-term writing job. Any other things that I've written have been, like, for me for my own projects and now I'm writing for someone else's show and it's Chris I love Chris
0: that's really cool I'm like sitting over here beaming because I think when coming from the art world perhaps when someone gets a new job it's you know it's usually just a day job that doesn't really have anything to do with what they're interested in and so I apologize for making that assumption but I thought well you know I remember you did you did uh Mathy finance stuff before of some kind, accounting type of stuff, and I was like, oh, maybe Anna's doing that again or something. But that's really cool. Congratulations! No, like,
2: thanks, thanks. It's like a fun comedy job.
0: That's really neat and yeah. uh, serendipitous. I was Chris's voice was in my ears as I entered the studio. Here. Oh, was, were you
2: listening to Beautiful Anonymous?
0: I was, yeah. Oh. I'd been meaning to for a while, and I just kind of got turned on to it and began listening i cool. mean i've known who chris was for a long time but finally added it to the queue uh-huh. and started listening and there was a you know it's a really fun show
2: yeah it's great he yeah he's got a lot of like little projects i mean he's got that and then he had that uh career suicide yeah, the thing show. on hbo and um now he's got this it it, it airs august 3rd on true tv
0: true tv mm-hmm. cool. it was on
2: fusion and now it's on true tv
0: that's really great. Congratulations. So you mm-hmm. have a day job that's a hundred percent in your field. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what you want to be doing. And then you get to perform at nighttime all the time.
2: Yeah. But I'm tired. I like just started <laughs> and I'm like, how do I how do I run errands? When do I do stuff I usually do during the day? Yeah, it you gets
0: know? that can be that can be a little bit rough, but um that's really great. So you've been uh you've been here before, you've been to Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Um And usually when people come in, well, I've only done two episodes, but I do kind of like to get people's impression on the seltzer machine and things like that. But since you've been here before, I don't know if you want to talk about the evening that you performed here or not.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah, I performed on election night for (laughs) Talk Hole special election night show. And I'm glad I was early in the lineup. It was, you know, a long (laughs) show that was you know going on at the same time as the news about you know who how the race was going and everything
0: being projected behind being projected behind as you were performing Mm -hmm.
2: and I did my bit and it was fun and everything's lighthearted and then as the night went on and it became clear that maybe things weren't going to go the way we wanted to the mood changed a lot and and then eventually I left, and you came with me, with Dre, and we went to my house <laughs> yeah. and watched it there.
0: <laughs> yeah, we watched Tynan and Lorelai, and I think Colin, mm-hmm. and a few other people were all hanging out. And it was the, um, that was the first time that I think that I've hung out with a bunch of you guys together, and people were kind of not, nobody's really cracking each other up. No. It was a pretty somber.
2: Very somber. Very somber
0: night. occasion. It, just felt, uh, it felt pretty surreal. I, I was just asking because that seems like such a strange Context to perform in, and maybe speaks to our silliness in assuming that things were going to go the way that yeah. we thought.
2: And earlier that day, Chris Gethard was doing an election special that was going all day. It was like a twelve-hour election special on public access, and so I had been to that. I did that earlier in the afternoon, so when I did that, it was still like very much could have gone either way. So fun and you know lighthearted. And then the people that were there as it got later and later. And then eventually when he won, they were all still there. And it was just like, the mood is awful.
0: Yeah, I bet it was worse at the Javits Center. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I suppose we avoided that, but that's enough of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we did talk a little bit about, so you're writing for Chris, but I wanted to ask about, uh, you know, we were kind of joking before we got on the mics that we've talked so much that there wasn't, what was I going to talk to you about? And, But I do realize that I don't think that I've talked to you about your own writing for what you're doing before and just kind of what that process is like because you have a very different style of stand up than I think what people assume stand up comedy is going to be like. And it's really kind of rapid fire. And you're sort of inhabiting all of these different characters, but perhaps they're all versions of you when you're not. I mean, you explicitly play characters sometimes in videos and things, but when you're performing live, you kind of seamlessly move between these different sort of versions of you. But I'm curious about when you're writing those, if these are characters in your head, and then you're kind of acting them out, but they're never named, or if this is kind of, or if that develops through live performance, if you just write, and then you kind of learn the voice after you've done them a few times.
2: It depends. There are some jokes that I wrote not thinking, how am I going to say this? I just thought it was a funny line. And others where I'll like a certain voice and then think, what would a person that talks like this say? Um, And when I'm preparing a set for a show, I try to organize it in a way so that nothing that's very similar is close to each other. And a lot of them change over time. Like There are some jokes that I've done like as one character that And I say character, but they're, like, not named. I mean, there are a couple, if I do... You don't
0: have, like, an origin myth or anything? No,
2: it's just, like, I started talking about this in my room, and I thought it was funny. So, um, there are some characters that I have done more stuff with that I do name, but a lot of them are, you know, unnamed. Just, I think, like, in my notes, I'll put, like, if if I want to remember what the, like, inflection is like or something, I'll put a little note for myself. Um, And then I'll always use that next time. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it's not like, um, I'm, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm playing any of myself in it unless I'm, I don't know. I mean, it's weird. It's like I am and I'm not. It, it, if you watch- I
0: apologize for projecting that onto you. Oh,
2: no, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Cause I, I think I'm a type of performer and I mean, there are plenty of people like this that if you saw my act- you don't know anything about me.
0: Yeah, I. You know that's a yeah. very. That yeah no. It's not that's, personal at I, all. Yeah, I suppose, and actually, yeah. I mean, there's no. There's no distinct narrative or anything that kind of peels away the veil during the performance or shows like a. Um, it's not really like letting somebody in in a particular way, not, right? And that's not a criticism. That's right. no,
2: yeah. It's just a different you know, style and there are, yeah. I mean, it's not that I don't like that stuff. I've just never felt a desire to, and also if it has crossed my mind, I think I can't make this funny. Why do I, I'm going to, I don't know. I, I, I've never been, um, very drawn to that type of confessional. And I don't want to say confessional, but like, you know, let me tell you a little bit about growing up and my family and all that
0: stuff. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, Huh. Are there people that you kind of feel like you're not modeling yourself after, but that were influential on that approach and that style? I mean, a few people come to mind for me, but I'm curious what you were absorbing that kind of shaped the way that you approach when you walk up on stage.
2: Well, when I first decided I wanted to try um, stand-up, I... When was that? That was like three years ago, uh like in June. Well, no, hmm. So there are like two dates in my head of like when I like started doing like live comedy and I guess technically like f- in June of, no, no, in like March or something, uh, sometime in the spring of 2014, I had met Julio um, and I was going to his show and he was like, he had been, he had seen like my videos and stuff online and we followed each other on social media and he was like, you know, I think you're funny. Do you do live stuff? And I was like, I i don't but i would i mean i don't know mm-hmm. what live stuff for me looks like because i oh, you know do my show I was like, okay so then i prepared a set that, that's julio torres yeah for, julio yeah, torres um i prepared a set that i don't remember what i did but it was not like a lot of character things it was still a lot of like short little things and then some kind of like longer like bullshit stories but After that, a few months later, once I was like, I want to try doing stand-up for real and go to open mics and stuff, um, I had lines that I wanted to say, but I thought that I couldn't do them the way I wanted to because I I thought that stand-up had to have a context and be kind of narrative-driven. So I would write these lines. I remember one that was like, um, I saved the vest for last. Mm Mm-hmm. It was like someone who's trying things on and mm-hmm. they, you know, so stupid, but whatever. I was like, I want to, I want to say that. But then I thought, I can't just say that. So I need to like, so I had like all this stuff before it, like talking about going shopping and getting all these things just so that I could at the end say, I saved the best for last. Yeah. So I was doing that a little bit and I was like, this doesn't feel right. And people were kind of like, it was not, I don't know. I was getting like weird reactions at open mics and I was like, I don't. I don't know, I'm going to go to... I ended up going to Lorelai Ramirez's mic, and that was when I thought, I'm going to try it the way I want to do it without the other context and just say the line that I think is funny. Um, and I did, and it went over well with that crowd, and I was like, oh, I'm, I can just do this. I didn't know I could just do this part I wanted to do. I thought I had to do stand-up the way that I had seen stand-up because I, I was never like, like a huge... I don't want to say, like, comedy nerd, but, like, I liked comedy, obviously, growing up, but I wasn't, like, I didn't know who Mitch Hedberg was when I was in high school or in college. Like, I didn't know a lot of these people that now, when I perform, people kind of will be like, oh, that reminds me of Mitch Hedberg, or that reminds me of, you know, other people that do really short-form stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and I would watch so many half-hour specials on Comedy Central. Just any time it was on, I would watch it, even if I didn't like it. Yeah. And so everything I saw for the most part was like narrative-driven stand-up. Mm-hmm. So I thought I had to do that. And then when I realized I didn't have to, it was like, you know, all, what is it? All bets are off or something? I can do, take the hat off, uh, unleash the chains. I'll I don't have, know. <laughs> I'll,
0: have, I'll have all of the bets off. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense because it's... um <clears throat> The way that you perform often seems like you're only doing a punchline. There's no setup. And I think that that's something that I can understand why somebody would see one of your sets and say, oh, you kind of remind me of Mitch Hedberg or something simply because of the brevity or the way Mm -hmm. that there's kind of this um, strange moment afterwards that takes a second for that wave of laughter where you really get it to Mm -hmm. come through kind of thing. But you're not doing a you're not doing a setup, a misdirection, and then like a punchline. It's just like these out of nowhere type of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I guess I saw you perform the first time, not, uh, terribly long after you'd started when you came to, uh, a very disorganized open mic that I was running that would go like five hours long and 40 people would <laughs> sign up. Forever. But, um, for the, for the listeners, I first met, Anna, because uh, I think it was Emerson Rosenthal, he had mm-hmm. invited you to come to it, and you came and you signed up, and uh, I was sitting off to the side, and i you gave me this bio that I was supposed to read for you that was just insane, and I had no idea what was going on. I can't remember what it was, and we'd never met before, and I was kind of giggling as I was trying to get through this thing, and then you went up, and... You took the microphone stand and you kept trying to adjust the height of it and were acting as if it was stuck and you couldn't do something. And I was sitting there and having this moment of, I was like, she's fucking with me, that's not, there's nothing wrong with the microphone stand. But then the longer that you were struggling with it, which I think you did for about 30 seconds, I started to think, am I being a very bad host? I should be helping her. But then I had this, I don't need to be like the dude who goes up and helps. The comic who can't do this, or something. And then, as soon as I stood up out of my chair, you released the thing and rocketed the microphone stand extremely hard at the ceiling, did a 360 roundhouse kick, kicked the mic stand over, and screamed at me, Is Shrek still in theaters? <laughs> and that was your opener.
2: Wow. Now I'm like, I'm like <clears throat> embarrassed hearing that.
0: It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And it was like, I think it was about halfway through a marathon of performances and you brought everybody back in and then you did. I just hadn't, um, I hadn't seen anybody kind of do that rapid fire thing that doesn't have these setups. Every single thing was you turning on a dime and doing the, I mean, I remember a ton of the jokes that you told at that first one, which is really funny because I've seen you perform so many times since then, but they were etched into my brain. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that was just a, a stage persona that I'd not really encountered previously. Um, and even if you were still developing it, it was pretty pretty original at that point. I think. <laughs> I'd never seen anybody roundhouse kick a microphone stand over and then scream at the host about Shrek. So that was
2: That's I mean it, the reason I said I'm embarrassed <laughs> when I hear that is because it is like I remember that mic was in like October maybe?
0: It was at fall twenty fourteen. Fall yeah. twenty
2: fourteen. So I had started going to mics in the summer of twenty fourteen. I still wasn't entirely sure what I was doing and I was still kind of and not that this is like necessarily bad but I feel like I was using what I would call like cheap laughs like doing something really physical that Mm -hmm. would get a laugh. Um, I I do still think is Shrek still in theaters (laughs) is funny but the other stuff I'm like oh that was like I don't know I met you when I was like figuring stuff out still <laughs> yeah. and i mean i guess i probably am always going to be figuring stuff out you but
0: know, it was well from a you know an objective outsider perspective of first seeing it it was pretty it was a pretty fascinating um change from the things that had come right before that um we're going to take a really quick break uh to hear from our generous sponsors who are supporting this podcast and i will be right back with more anna fabrega
1: Hey. What in the benangela is happening out there? Are you having a good day, booster? I really hope so. I really do. Don't you dare try to fuck with me when I'm vacationing with my sons in Little Italy, you junior varsity low-rent diet caffeine-free snowflake. That is our time. You hear me? Our time. You're gonna get your little adult diaper potato salad ass handed to you in a ramekin if you don't quit mouthing me off. Moose Knuckle. Today's episode is brought to you by Mira Gonzalez's Twitter account where you can see heck of pictures of cute doggies and watch her harass Republican Senators and their families. All in real time. The website remains free. Follow her today at Ragons. This episode is also sponsored by Zoe Dubno's YouTube channel. Check out her sick-as-fuck cartoons by visiting youtube.com user slash Dubno. Those fucking cartoons are about as real as it gets. And I know real. I've read Hal Foster's Return of the Real three times and I have an MFA degree. You will address me as Chauncey. Mac. Pantone. The King of the L Train. Comma MFA. Well, I guess it's time to get back to the show. Let me know if you want to be my daddy or my little cuckwagon. John Cougar Camp is the GOAT.
0: Well, all the government wants to talk about, they want to keep giving more loans and more loans. That's all. Seems like that's all they've got in their head. We don't need another loan. We need a good price. Just another farm loan, that's just another payment we've got to make and we can't afford to do that. I think the politicians are playing games with us, you know. It don't cost them anything to change the rule, you know, and embargo another country. <laughs> All they want is cheap food, which I can see that.
1: but They don't take the farmer into consideration at all. Just sick of working 10 or 12 hours a day or more and just breaking even if you're lucky, if you're real good. If I had to start
0: all over, if I knew what I was going to be like when I got out of high school, I probably wasn't done it. You want to buy a farm? <laughs> thing. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. roll back into it. Um, I'll do it. You want to do the? Mm-hmm. We're back from break. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, anytime you're ready, and with any vibe that mm-hmm. with any vibe that you like, you can welcome us back.
2: And we're back. Thanks for sticking around. Back to you, Sean.
0: Oh, thank you, Anna. Uh, now we were talking a little bit about your style and your characters, and I had mentioned earlier that it seems like sometimes you're eschewing narrative in um, the larger arc. There's all these little stories and things that are going on, but some of the stuff that I've really enjoyed going to see that you've put together were when you and Lorelai Ramirez were doing the Comedy Central Pretends events where it would be this extremely thematic show that went all the way for two hours where every comic who was coming on was doing these bits that were based on a narrative or a theme. You guys did a quinceañera. You did a X. Mm-hmm. That was the a conference by... Women for females? Mm -hmm. It was like
2: a TED Talk type, like those TEDx events, but it was for women. (laughs) Femex.
0: And then you guys did the log show.
2: Oh, um, yeah, the log show. And
0: some other things. And I'm curious about the, the writing process with that then, which I assume is very different than when you're writing in your notebook and coming up with different characters that you might play when you're collaborating with these other people. How much are you getting beforehand from the people that you're inviting because each person will come on and sort of play a character in this narrative that you've concocted are they letting you know beforehand what they're doing is everybody working together or is some of it just kind of a surprise and you don't know who they are and you're responding in real time
2: it's a little bit of everything for some of the shows like for the quinceanera show for example we knew that we wanted eliza to play the quinceanera so her role is designated we wanted carmen christopher to play an uncle. So when we re- reached out to him, we said, "Can you play an uncle who's coming to the quinceañera?" And the other people, and for most of the other shows, we just asked people to play someone that would fit in this world, that would be a part of this. Um, Because, well, both Lorelai and I, I think, like to be as hands off as we can when we invite people to do stuff. I don't want to tell you know ask someone to be on my show and then tell them what to do. Yeah. So. Um, sometimes we we would try to get a sense beforehand of what everyone was doing just so that we could organize ourselves and structure the show in a way that made the most sense and make sure that, you know, if someone was doing a bit that would work better earlier in the show that we had them up top and things like that. So those were a little more organized, but it was never like everyone who was on the show was meeting and talking. It was Lorelai and I, and then, you know, talking with other people individually, maybe like via email, but it was never like these group writing sessions
0: mm-hmm. and so you but you and Lorelai kind of came up with essentially an arc mm-hmm. and you kind of invite people to fill in little pockets throughout it yeah as you're going
2: yeah I mean we just like I mean since we live together we would just be like at home and start throwing ideas out for the show and what could happen and anything that made us laugh a lot we're like oh let's you know follow this uh train of thought and then eventually would kind of figure out and um the rest of the story and um yeah but it was it was always just like a very collaborative back and forth oh what if this happened oh yeah and then and then what if this happened type Mm -hmm. of thing
0: yeah that's really cool I think those have those have been some of my favorite things that I've gotten to watch in terms of a really great way to introduce people to a lot of different comedians and performers and things like that well, everybody kind of is driving this narrative that keeps people involved because um, sometimes there were like there were nine people performing in it or something. And that's kind of a long bill on a regular thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to know what happens in the story kind of thing. Yeah. It's really <clears throat> a fun way to engage people for a long period of time.
2: Yeah, they were fun shows. I mean, we haven't done it in a while. And now that you're, you know, that we're talking about it, I'm like oh, we should do another one. Why, why, why haven't we done another one? But it is such a fun way to just get together a group of people that, you know, are funny and put, like, a story together. Because I think some people, depending on the audiences, especially for those shows since we were make, doing them with BHQFU, they were at spaces that, you know, the crowds that were coming were not just people that are coming to our comedy shows or people that, you know, are more kind of in the art world. So making something that, like, they're engaged with that isn't just, like, a comedy show where a comic comes up, does a set and sits down, and then, like, okay, new thing, new comic. Um, So just to, like, weave everything together and... I don't know make a little play and it is one of those things that it's like yeah we'll put like all this effort into something and just do it once and like that's it (laughs) and we move on but I think that's part of the fun of it
0: yeah that's part of the appeal I think too as an audience member is you're just kind of realizing that this isn't a touring thing this isn't going to happen again you're watching this really insane thing happen in real time and if you weren't there that's kind of it and most of these people probably are never going to do anything that's even kind of like they're not doing sets they're Mm -hmm. playing a role right this kind of longer narrative so you get this really different style for each person too than they might typically do if you go and see them at at someone's monthly or something like that yeah
2: for sure i mean and the stuff that laura and i do together is stuff that is so different from like what i do solo and like for her and it's just funny when i think about it like what our happy medium is and it's been those shows that Mm -hmm. it's just like yeah it's such a a fun you know experiment and experience to work with someone and you know just find out what your collaborations look like and i always end up i feel like it's a lot crazier than i would do on my own so i was like <laughs> nuts i'm like i would never like do this but for some reason with Lorelai, i'm like yeah yeah i'll do that
0: she's an enabler mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um can we talk about Arizona a little bit? Yeah. Since I lived there and you grew up there. Uh-huh. I am curious. Uh, I'm very curious what Anna was like as a little kid in school and whether you, because you're extremely funny, but I can't really place you as somebody who is being a class clown or acting up and things like that, but maybe you were. I don't know if you
1: mm-hmm.
0: were acting, because you're very calm in person. Yeah. You know, <laughs> which is... Which is great because then it's like, I think that's why I was so surprised the first time that I saw you perform was because when you came up to say, hey, can I sign up? I was just like, yeah, sure. And you seemed really mellow and like just laid back and then mm-hmm.
1: you,
0: then you're a little fireball. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm curious what Arizona was like, whether that has any, I mean, I can see some places where maybe that influenced some of those shows that you did with Loreline things, but yeah, I just want to know about. You know, Anna's youth.
2: My time in Arizona... Well, we moved to Arizona when I was in first grade. Mm -hmm. Um, So, starting there... I mean, I was always, like, very well-behaved in school. And it's something that I still think about now. I have these ideas in my head of, like, authority and following rules that I will catch myself sometimes. um, and, And be like, why do I... Wait, who cares if this thing is, like, a little off? Like, why do I have this, like, feeling of, like, authority. And I think in school, I was very much like that. Like, I do not want to get in trouble. I want to be a good student. I want to behave. You know, if people are talking, I'm annoyed that they're talking because we're in class and you're supposed to be quiet in class. (laughs) And so it was very like that. Um, But I was, I don't want I wasn't, like, a class clown in the sense that I was, like, big and goofing off all the time. But, like, I mean, I was messing around a lot, but always, like, I would never do anything that would get me in trouble, So I didn't want to get in trouble, and when I was in, like, I feel like it, was, it wasn't until I was in high school that I kind of realized, you know, that I had such an interest in, in comedy. Um, in middle school, like, yeah, I, I wouldn't say middle school was anything noteworthy. Um, when I was in high school, my junior and senior year, I was on an improv team. My school had, like, a it was like five or six people on an improv team.
0: Is this in Tempe?
2: In Scottsdale, in yeah. Scottsdale. I grew up in Scottsdale, okay. and
0: I lied on the last episode. I said you grew up in Tempe. I apologize. Scottsdale oh, is Scottsdale. Temp- yeah. It's Tempe's hat.
2: It's thirty-five minutes away.
0: <laughs> it is not. It's just on the other side of the two o two.
2: Well, yeah, I guess it depends what part. They're close, but it's an honest mistake. (laughs) It's part of the Phoenix metro area. I
0: apologize. I feel like when I lived there, if I had misidentified someone who was very serious about living in Scottsdale, living in Tempe, they would have been very upset. I know that that you don't. (laughs) Um, Um, But anyways, high school improv team.
2: Yeah, and that's when I kind of realized, like, oh, I really like performing for people in like a comedic setting because I've been playing a lot of music. That was like my main like performance thing. I was playing drums in like bands when with friends and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: what were those bands called? Oh, Give me some um, names. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you a couple of mine if you, if I'll you tell you. Them.
2: I'll tell you the one and only name. Okay. When I was in seventh grade, I was in a band with these two guys. It was me playing drums, one of them playing guitar and singing, and the other playing bass. And initially there was a fourth girl who was also playing guitar. But she left. So then, when we were coming up with the name, I think this was my suggestion. But I'm—I pray to God I'm wrong. Remainder of three, because we oh, were yeah. three. Yeah,
0: people yeah, left. yeah, no, like a math. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a power trio. But
2: that was the only thing that was named. Oh, okay. actually, that's a lie. When I started making music myself, just I bought like a loop pedal and I had a little um, mm. one of those like M audio boxes on my laptop, and I would like record stuff in there on on. Uh, a keyboard and in fruity loops or mm-hmm. excuse me fl studio i don't even know if it's still around uh, but i was making music under the name whale city that that's was your I'm, that was your youtube that's why my right? youtube is tried, whale city yeah
0: yeah i tried to find a youtube video of yours earlier today we can talk about that later but oh no i took it down I, I took down a bunch of stuff <clears> one day i, I was, was like i don't very, want to have this i was very disappointed i was Ow. going to i was going to share it in the oh no in the uh in the, wild, the Wilder Social Club, it is uh, Darcy Wilder's Slack channel. Oh. And I just really wanted to share it because we were talking about uh, doing this podcast later. And I was like, oh, I really want to show this deep cut, which was one of the first things that I ever saw of Goofy.
2: Oh, yeah. Goofy.
0: But uh, anyways. You're yeah. Playing... I, I had even
2: before I took that <laughs> So Whale down, City
0: was the tunes, too.
2: Yeah. And I would put videos on YouTube of me in the basement of my house in a room um, recording things. There were these like 17 minute videos that were like, okay, I'm gonna lay the first track down. So I'd like plug my loop pedal into my keyboard. I had like a weighted electric piano, and I'd record something on there. And then it would take me a little while to figure out what I wanted to do because I would just improvise them. So I would start, and then once I found something I liked, okay, loop it, and then plug into like the guitar, record something on guitar. Plug into the bass, put record something on the bass. And then go to my drum set. And since I didn't have enough mics to mic my drum set, I would record. I would either put one mic kind of in between my hi-hat and my snare and hope that it picked up enough. Or I would record each drum individually. Mm -hmm. And so do some, like literally get on the floor, like hunch over and hit the kick drum and Mm -hmm. record it like that. Um, But then I would, you know, at the end of the thing, you would hear this whole song that I just made, like, you know, live. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I put them up on YouTube. But then I, you know, when I was in college one day, I was like, I don't want to have this out there in the world. So I guess, what? why did I start talking about that? Oh, yeah, because that was the type of performing I was doing was music. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I started performing comedy, I was like, I like this a lot. And one of the things that was like, or the shows that were really big for me that I think really influenced, like, the kind of stuff I thought was funny was Wonderchosen when mm-hmm. I was in middle school. I loved Xavier Renegade Angel when I was like a sophomore in high school. A friend of mine showed it to me. A lot of those adult swim shows. I didn't get into Tim and Eric until like my senior year of high school. And then I I liked like I don't know, but I I loved the um uh, like Waiting for Guffman and those kinds of like mockumentaries. Mm-hmm. And I liked 30 Rock too a lot when it came out. But I was never like I was never a comedy nerd. When I started doing stand up, and people would be like, "Oh, do you like so and so?" I'm like, "I don't know who that is." Like, you don't know who that is, and you're a comedian. <laughs> like a lot of that stuff. And I was like, "Shit, do I need to like research comedy?" And then eventually, I was like, "No, who cares? If I haven't seen that, obviously it's like like I don't. It's fine. My life has gone just fine without yeah. like watching all of Conan. You know, <laughs> every, every every episode of Conan. Yeah. So it's it's fine. Um, but I like. The videos that I started recording in college um, on my laptop, just on the the shitty webcam from, you know, like a 2009 HP laptop were like when I when I see them now, I'm like, oh, I totally understand how I got from there to here. Because a lot of it was just like these like weird kind of one-off things or, like, this one little joke that I would just kind of, like, cling to or it was Mm -hmm. just a line of dialogue that I liked. Um, I remember posting two jokes, and I called them jokes, and they were just long stories, but they weren't, like, comedy. It was just, like, I would just call it a joke, and Mm -hmm. it would start with, like, a guy walks into a bar, but then just, like, tell a story about, like, he ordered this, and he had this to eat, and then he left, you know, things like that. Um, And...
0: Were you writing the... um... You had a blog.
2: Oh, yeah. Also,
0: uh, the Spaghetti Princess. Yes. Was that the name?
2: (laughs) That was the name. Yeah.
0: I remember reading some of those posts. I think Emerson Rosenthal also sent that to me. I think after he might have sent it before you even did the mic and he was like, oh, check this thing out or something. I think he sent it as a text message on the phone and you're kind of like, oh, I'm going to open a web browser and read on my phone or something. And then uh, after you performed, I was like, what was that thing that you sent me? I re- like, I want to read it. And then I remember going through the Spaghetti Princess, and I don't even remember what was on it. I was just <laughs> losing my shit. And it was
2: like, I mean, it's, and that too is something that I'm like, oh, that was me like figuring out like characters. Because it was a character blog. It was just one girl.
0: It was the idea that you couldn't tell if the girl was 12 or 4. If she was a 40-year-old woman. It was just like a very (laughs)
2: ambiguous age. Um, And she would, like, I mean, I would do stupid things, like put, uh, like, I remember I took a photo. I bought, like, a can of tuna, and I put it in a a fish tank.
1: With um, water in it?
2: With water in it. And I took a photo, and I said, like, I asked my mom if I could get a fish, and she said, I have to practice with this first. (laughs) So it was just, like, stupid things like that. Um, And getting, like... Yeah, so I did that for like, I I started that in college when I was like a, maybe like a junior, I think, or a senior, no, my junior year, yeah, and then I started posting less my senior year on it, but I was, and I would periodically post on it after I graduated, but then eventually I stopped, Um, but I had kept that, and my YouTube stuff, like all, everything was, and my Twitter, I used to have an awful Twitter, you remember Milkell.
0: I remember Milk and I remember Expert Walker.
2: Oh, yeah. Those
0: were two that you yeah. had? Milkel is such a good name, though. I, I mean, still
2: got Milk if I wanted. I hope want so. it, but right. But I, but I had everything with my name not on it. Because mm-hmm. at the time, I was like, I don't want... I'm applying to jobs right now. Yeah. I don't want anyone to know that this is a part of me. I just want to be, like, n- nice, polite, calm, look at my resume, please hire me type of person, yeah. you know? Um, but... I guess this is getting very far from your Arizona question.
0: No, you've walked me through, though, from Arizona Mm -hmm. to New York. Um, I was just asking because it's a point of reference. But I think we were very, I was at a very different age. when I I mean, I went to college there, and then Mm -hmm. you left when you went to college. And I also, I also miseducated you in the last episode, which I'd like to apologize for. I said to Amy Zimmer, Anna went to Arizona State. And she said, no, she didn't. She went to Fordham. (laughs) I was like, I'm, I did go to Florida. that's also, that's actually far more insulting than saying that someone, uh, is care. from Tempe you didn't go to, who is actually from Scottsdale, but, um, no, it's fine. We don't have to talk about Arizona. It's, it's hot there. Yeah, it's it is. It's very hot right it's now.
2: It's nice to visit though, but I, I do think like, I, I, I go
0: every winter.
2: I, I went in last in the winter, years. too. Um
0: but, Claire is from there. So we, yeah. go, well, we go to Tucson, mm-hmm. I guess, which is a little different and yeah. sort of more novel because I didn't live there for a long time like I right. did in uh, the Phoenix area.
2: Yeah. But I liked Arizona. I think in like, I don't know. Now I'm like thinking about like, OK, what was like improv like when I was in high school? And I think I always and I don't know how else to describe it. And I don't mean to sound like. Like, whatever. But I feel like I was the one that, like, people would be like, that's so random. How do What? You just said that? Like, where did that come from? Like, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know? You're
0: like, well, I'm improvising. But. It's, by definition, it is random. Yeah. But
2: it was always, like, my, I don't know. I, I think my, my sense of humor was always just kind of like, Anna's so weird. Like, that kind of, you know, vibe.
0: It was, I remember, I use this, I probably overuse this adjective to describe people's comedy. I most certainly do. But I think I got it from Steve Martin's autobiography, which he said, I think when he was very young and performed one of the first times, someone said, young man, you have an oblique sense of humor. And Ah. I think that's a really fun way to describe um, a lot of the people who you kind of run around with and the people in that scene and also your own work that I find it to be a very oblique sense of humor and Mm -hmm. I mean that as a as a very genuine compliment it's a
2: I'll take it yeah yeah I'll take any compliment I can get it's fine yeah
0: (laughs) yeah um no that's that's uh I think that's kind of fascinating to think about the the music composition actually if I can go back to that for a second Mm -hmm. because I asked. I've asked Lorelai Ramirez about this too, about structuring mm. the way that you approach a live performance when you're doing something solo. And you had talked before about how you're thinking about all these different pieces and how you're going to move them around and things like that. And it's really, I think, a background in music probably has uh, enriched your ability to do that because you're thinking about you're thinking about a set maybe in the same way that a song happens, where there's kind of like there's an intro, there's a verse, there's a chorus, you got to kind of switch for the bridge, you come back for the chorus and things like that. And even if it's subconscious, I'm sure your ability to compose music and play instruments and things like that is uh, no pun intended instrumental in your ability to concoct a set and understand kind of how people are going to respond.
2: Yeah, I guess when you put it like that, I do now, when I think of sets, like to have things in the beginning that in my head are like an intro, like a way to kind of get you in. Usually it's like a longer sort of bit. So then, when I start doing a lot of short things you're you, you know you are already kind of on board, yeah, and then break things up in the middle a little bit, do some audience stuff more of this a little crowd work little crowd work you, you do know?
0: like crowd work
2: i do i mean it i I do crowd work most just at my show that i host i love
0: that's that's sort of uh par for the course though right like if you're hosting yeah. you kind of yeah. Kind of getting people.
2: Yeah, and I and I get it out of my system because I don't do it in my sets the way that I do it when I host. So yeah. I get to just like mess around and talk about nothing. No, I'm talk fucking to with. I
0: mean, you do crowd work, but you do this very control. You're not asking people. What right, they I'm have not for like. Dinner. Where'd it's you a come very, from? Yeah. It's very controlled kind of. Uh, we're going to perform a task together. Yeah. And I'm going. That's to a do good way to I'm say going it. To like <laughs> 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 There's a. I think about to this. um artist Michael Portnoy, who, uh, he's married to Yeva. Do you know Yeva? She's oh. a performance artist. Wait, Ye- Yeva,
2: Mil- mm-hmm. Lord of Beef?
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, Michael and Yeva are married, and they were my teachers at a residency one time, uh-huh. and they're both really funny performance artists, but Michael Portnoy describes himself as, instead of, a, instead of doing relational aesthetics as art, he's a relational Stalinist. And I see that, and you're kind of <laughs> like, "Hey, everybody, we're going to do this thing together, and they're not you're not really asking for audience participation, which I yeah. think is great. You're sort of forcing it on people, and that's a great uh approach though, because there's nothing sadder than the band that's asking people to come a little bit closer to the stage yeah, that's one of the Oof. one of the can, can
2: everyone just move in I want we'll just move in a little bit <laughs> yeah, that's tough. I mean that happens at shows too. When when the rooms are laid out in a way that's not doesn't automatically make people move up front. Yeah, you know, and then yeah, I'm always a big fan of when people um, try to get everyone closer to the stage mm. so that as the show goes on, you know, it's not it's a bit warmer mm. for the other comics.
0: Yes. Yeah. You're setting it up for them. Mm-hmm. Giving them a layup.
2: Yeah, it's nice. Um, but I'm trying to remember. You had mentioned something that made me, oh yeah, the music thing. Um, I also I think in like I hadn't thought of this before, but a lot of the order of the short jokes that I do and character stuff is like it depends on how they sound. So if I think like something sounds too similar, the two voices sound like a little too similar.
0: Like the actual voices or the content of like like the actual
2: voice Mm -hmm. that I'm saying it in. If it sounds too much. Like I wouldn't do like a Doctor Escobar type voice <clears throat> alongside the voice of the person who spins the rotisserie chickens because they sound similar you're enough.
0: A, you're such an asshole. Well, just I mean, I mean, I not that anybody doctor. knows who these are,
2: <laughs> but it's like, but you know them, so you know, know what I mean.
0: Yes. No, I know, but it's just too offhandedly be like, yeah. Doctor Escobar yeah. and the person who spins the rotisserie chicken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's like little inflections that. Yeah. Yeah. No. Like I color or something. Like yeah, they have different colors. Yeah, that's a good them, way to describe sort of. it. And it's, it's, not, it's not peach. Like orange and peach are different. Mm-hmm. They look similar when they're next to each other, but they're not. So I'm going to move them apart and put like blue in the middle.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's really structural and mm-hmm. kind of... Um, I talked to Lorelai about that before too, about whether it's like sculptural or structural or... Um, but maybe like composing is a better, a more accurate way to think about it because it's very much like looking at looking at the structure of a song or something mm-hmm. you're like oh we can't repeat that part again right. or we can't we have to do a dynamic change mm-hmm. here or we have to do something to get attention yeah.
2: when but, people say you're a comedian I say no I'm a composer You do so know. I like to think of okay. myself as more of a composer <laughs> that's great
0: <laughs> okay we're gonna take a quick break uh, hear from our sponsors again and we'll be right back with more Anna Fabrega
1: well fuck me I have been swamped lately. Just totally swamped. Living in New York feels like a full-time job. I don't have time to buy groceries. But I love to cook. It's a real catch-22. And I'm not talking about the ska band if you catch my drift. Wouldn't it be easier if I could come home and there was a box outside of my apartment filled with delicious ingredients that were pre-measured to ensure no waste? That would be the pajamas belonging to a cat. That's why I signed up for YouTube TV. I use it to watch Fargo and the new Twin Peaks. At the same time, the narratives overlap nicely like when I take a bong rip of ketamine laced salvia and play Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon over the Wizard of Oz. Agent Cooper is in Minnesota. The Black Lodge is a parking garage. I am content. One with the universe. I have two hands. One butt. One soul. When I was in college someone told me that their Jimmy John's delivery guy also delivered weed. I bet neoliberal economics has put him out of business by now because people order weed on their phones. Does anybody want to get dinner at Lucy and night? I heard it is pornographically delicious. Stop saying that artists should move to Detroit. The Pixies are a terrible band.
0: What is happening right now in Brooklyn, do you think, that's causing such a robust amount of people to be doing all these different shows and having such a, I mean, frankly, just like a representational comedy scene, right? Mm -hmm. And people being very... Sort of socially conscious and being very political, but it, you're not going. It's not like George Carlin. You're not going mm-hmm. and having some. Yeah. It's it's just kind of. I talked with Jabuki and Amy about this. Um, that it's almost just leading by example, or it's just like practical politics, and the fact that it's happening is what's important. But I'm just curious your take about the community and the, uh, the community, the scene, kind of what's going on in Brooklyn and why. Why you think this is important right now?
2: That's, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that. I think...
0: Start at the beginning. At
2: the very beginning. Well...
0: Where did you leave your keys last? That's how you find them, where you lost them.
2: Yeah, well, my car's been towed during the podcast, so (laughs) I don't need my keys. Um, But I guess, hmm, I think what's happened is a lot of people who were in kind of disparate scenes were like eventually found each other cuz pretty much everyone that I know are people who have been performing for as long or longer than I have I I think more like newish to the group of people that I'm with in terms of like when I started yeah but they were all doing stuff and then slowly found each other it was kind of born out of this necessity of in feeling like at going to a conventional comedy club like you would you know the comedy cellar those places in the west village Um, And going to open mics at places in the sort of like UCBs and pits of the world, like it was like this group of people that didn't quite fit in there and maybe didn't like what was happening there. Like, you know, it it sucks to go to open mics and hear men saying awful things about women or about, you know, so I think it was just a, a response to that that slowly came together. And then once it was Kind of forming more people, and like more people were doing shows that were from this kind of group of outcasts. Um, and I don't want to say outcasts, but it was just like
0: no, but just people who maybe were sort of like misfits in a traditional sense of what mm-hmm. fits in in a in right a, in a club or yeah, exactly. Or it was people like who
2: were like, you are not gonna the they, the you know, Carolines wasn't knocking at their door, being like, you know, mm-hmm. so it was. I think out of that and i think those people and i don't know how to say this without sounding like an asshole but are smart and they're smart in their comedy and smart in their politics Mm -hmm. not always but i feel like a lot of the funniest and most talented people that i know are also very socially conscious and aware and political whether it's outright or not in their work and the scene that is developed that like is currently sort of exists in Brooklyn has now changed a lot I mean I think over the last year I've I felt like it's changed a lot just because once it started getting more attention and people from it started becoming I don't know like more famous essentially mm-hmm. um, other people started paying attention and coming so it attracted other people too so then it just kind of went from this group of People that all know each other to then like other people who had heard about what was going on and like you know jumped on board. Um, and it's do a, you
0: mean audiences or performers too?
2: I think both. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think both. There, I mean, it's it's hard to... Uh, some of it was also just kind of the result of like venues that were available and places opening and closing, and all that. But I think what's happening, or I don't. Like it comes in waves hmm. always. I mean, people talk about like Eugene Merman and like the, like that wave of New York comedy that was here, like in, I don't know, but, like, I don't want to say maybe 10 years ago or something, maybe less. Um, but it was like, you know, and before that, there was another group. So it just kind of like always cycles through, I think. Um, so I, I feel like it's starting to get to a place where like now these people who are all just, going to open mics or, you know, putting on free shows and performing for free all the time or starting to get work and starting to, you know, be able to make money making comedy in whatever capacity that may be. Um, and and they're just doing stuff that's a lot more interesting than I think what you find at like a comedy club. And that's not to say that there aren't great stand-ups. And I think there are some stand-ups who fit the more like traditional sense of a stand-up that perform for these crowds or in these spaces, for these people that um, do, like, fit in really well. And, I, th- I mean, Jabuki in my head, is a stand-up. He's, yeah. you know, he's, a I think, a Absolutely. great example yeah. of someone who's, like, he's not doing, like, character stuff in bits. Sure, he does that, like, you know, feminist bro thing, but, like, he's a stand-up, and no, he's an amazing he's like stand-up. A, yeah, it's yeah.
0: very in control, and it feels like a structure that you're familiar with. Yeah. He's, He's slightly different in his maybe vibe of what he's talking about. But in general, mm-hmm. he, yeah, no, he yeah. he could fit in in right. multiple contexts and Yeah, people would understand what he was doing.
2: Yeah. So I think there are people like that that can fit well any place that you put them because anyone who sees him can recognize like that he's very special, you know. So I think there are people like that that like float through like different facets or like parts of the comedy scene with ease and then... And and they tend to be, like, I don't know, just, like, more aware of stuff. I'm like, you're, like, thinking in a different way, and hopefully that, like, translates into your personal life and the way that you, like, I don't know, like, your politics, I guess, at the end mm-hmm. of the day. And that's not to say that everyone is, like, holds the same values across the board, but it's, like, there will not be any sexism tolerated at the shows. If anyone says anything racist or homophobic, you will get the mic shut off, like, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. And... So it is like, I guess if I had to like summarize it um, much more succinctly than that, it's, I think it was born out of a reaction to not liking what was going on and being tolerated in more traditional comedy clubs and people that were just performing work that didn't quite fit any mold, but it was still comedy because it made you laugh, but Mm -hmm. I don't know what to call it. It's not quite performance art. It's. But it's not stand-up in the conventional sense. So and then eventually they just kind of found each other.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting that it got and it does come in waves, but it's interesting that it got some attention and that people are um, <clears throat> you know, providing avenues for people to earn income afterwards. Clearly that's very important. And the silver lining of that is that all of these people who came out of this scene are now writing for things that you know, have much more mainstream appeal and and it starts to change the culture at large because you have these different voices and you have different people kind of defining what qualifies as comedy. And I think Mm -hmm. that what's interesting to me about the group of people that are, that you hang out with and that I've been introduced to through you and different things like that is that they're mining much different material for what's funny as opposed to really easy go-to kind of... um, essentially conservative stereotypes mm-hmm. which is where you get the easiest laugh that's what so much in sitcoms and traditional stand up yeah. comedy relies on and maybe that's what i meant earlier by this oblique thing it's just a different angle that someone's mm-hmm. looking at and finding the humor in um a misunderstanding or something being confusing or totally strange mm-hmm. or
2: yeah i mean i i like i don't even tell jokes half of the things i say like i mean <laughs> if i say i like i'm trying to think of one that's a good example like today i teach my dog oreo to do a rollover so that's like i mean i'm not going to perform it but you know like it's just me saying i taught my dog to do a trick Mm -hmm. but for some reason it like makes me laugh and there's like a lot of things like that that are just like it's not it's not a joke per se it's not at
0: someone's expense is what's different about it yeah it's uh it is it is funny in that it's funny. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not pointing a finger or it's not making fun of.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can't think of anyone that I perform with that, you know, their humor relies or their jokes rely on isn't, like, this type of person so stupid or anything like that. It's, like, very nice in the sense that it's, yeah, it's never at anyone's expense. And I think a lot of comics, and like, especially the ones that are known for, like, you know, kind of picking on the crowd and, like, that, like the roast culture, like, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, that is not at all, like, what I think people in my scene would, like, do or, like, that sort of, like, oh, come on, you could take a joke. Like, mm-hmm. let's all, like, be mean, like, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, um I don't think that's, like, in some of these people. Not to say that, you know, there's, they're not capable of that because I've seen, like, roast shows I'm trying to remember what it was I saw I think it was at over the eight and I think it was Chris Gethard getting roasted or he was there too or someone like was getting roasted and it was their friends and seeing like their take on our roast was so funny because it was still that like idea of you know let's kind of poke fun at each other but it's not yeah there's like it's just like not mean. Mm-hmm. I was am like, why, why are there mean comics? You're a comedian. It's supposed to make people laugh. Don't be mean doing it. What?
0: Yeah. No, there's, there's already enough mean stuff. It seems like, and I, it's really easy to make fun of something. Yeah. I mean, it's really easy to be mean to somebody actually. That's, that's, you know, we could do that in grade school. I think the, the task that's been undertaken by the community that you're a part of fascinates me because it's a different it's a different calling, but it's also a different challenge to come up with. And it's not clean comedy. I mean, people curse and they yeah. say like <laughs> fucking weird, awful really yeah. weird shit. There's like some uh. grossly violent stuff. There's horrifying things, mm-hmm. but it's, um, but it's never, none of it feels reductive, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. And there's this kind of attempt to be generative or expand the field of what can be turned into a joke, not in like, let's push the envelope on mm-hmm. which. Fucking marginalized group we can fuck with next, but PC culture is ruining comedy. (laughs) All that
2: stuff. I'm like, what? I think
0: it's no. That's it's a generation of people who are simply woke. um,
2: They are quite simply woke. (laughs) It's I feel
0: like well clearly that, but I think it's also though it's just that there's a generation of people who feel uh, enfranchised not to be quiet about being made fun of. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there's a whole there's a huge amount of people who don't fit traditional gender binaries or sexual orientations or anything who just for maybe the first time in several generations are like, no, you can't fucking make fun of me. Right. It's not PC. It's Mm -hmm. knock it the fuck off, because I think we all know that the people who love to do that kind of comedy are twice as sensitive as anybody who's grown up dealing with that for their Mm -hmm. entire life like they can't handle going to a college campus and having people be like we don't want you to perform here because you suck it's Mm -hmm. like that's not censorship right that's people telling you that you're irrelevant yeah so don't go there yeah that's not your demographic i guess but
2: i agree i think it is a lot people are in my generation and I, i mean when I say
0: uh, you have to stutter when you say my generation uh, my, like because
2: I was like my my, my generation what is my generation I don't know what technically what the age or years you know birth years for my generation You're a count millennial. I'm a millennial I'm
0: on the cusp I think oh I was 82 which I think in some circles is not uh is not a millennial and mm-hmm. some is but I don't think I don't think is gen x I think Gen Mm. X is seventies. Like you had to be born. Yeah, it's the generation between baby boomers and millennials. Yeah, I think I'm in a weird. Yeah, you're on the micro gap. But yeah, you're a a a sun
2: millennial, and a a Gen X moon. Yeah, (laughs) and a baby boomer rising.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, that's yeah, that's I mean, and that makes sense because I um, I took out a mortgage that I couldn't afford, and Mm -hmm. I also have done everything in my power to raise the cost of college. Yeah, Um, and I said I. Still support the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. One of the few proud yeah. <laughs> supporters of <laughs> the occupation. Jesus.
2: Um, but what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think people, yeah, are just in general, comedy aside, just much more socially aware and mindful of things in a way that has not been present in the past. And, and it's like bled into comedy. Yeah. It's good.
0: I think it's very healthy.
2: Yeah, yesterday I was I saw my grandparents and on the TV my grandpa was watching. You saw your
0: grandparents on the TV?
2: I was I was at my grandparents and oh. period. <clears throat> my grandpa was watching <clears throat> Two and a Half Men. The, is that the one with with the name Charlie Sheen? Yes. yes. Later
0: replaced by Ashton Kutcher. Okay. When Charlie it was Sheen with Charlie went, Sheen yeah.
2: and and just like walking by the TV I heard. Some, you know, thing happening in the show about...
0: Where one of them, he was calling someone gay, probably.
2: Yeah, it was like, I'm not gay. <laughs> yeah. Literally, like, the joke was like, <laughs> haha being gay. I'm straight. I'm not gay. And I was like, this is unbelievable. This is like one of the most successful sitcoms in
0: history. I think history. Charlie Sheen was the highest paid yeah. actor in a sitcom at and, any time for that. And that's why he wasn't on it afterwards is because he wouldn't take... He, he wanted a rate. I don't know. But whatever. Yeah, it's... It's Mm -hmm. highly regressive, and it's actually – that's what I meant, I guess, earlier when I said that. And I I stole this from Simon Critchley, who's a philosopher, and he came to the class that I taught, but he wrote a great book that's called On Humor that I think everybody should read. It's really slim, but he really talked about in a class visit when I had him where he was like, everybody who does comedy pretends like it's this – highly progressive avant-garde thing and that you're the court jester and you speak truth to power and all these things. And he was like, but anything in mainstream comedy is it's incredibly conservative Mm -hmm. in its politics and its recognition of history. And it really relies on some very lazy and um, outdated and ridiculous stereotypes that are, Mm -hmm. I guess, like I said earlier, reductive. But yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to go to the shows and see all of these people and they're making me laugh about things. I'm like, I didn't even know that that concept was funny. I hadn't mm-hmm. thought about yeah. that or whatever. You know? Yeah.
2: And it's great. And you don't, you don't have to go for the, I don't know. I don't want to say low hanging fruit, but like the stuff that relies that, like the laughs are dependent on people having like essentially being like bigoted mm-hmm. in some way, you know,
0: Edgelords. like Lords.
2: Yeah. Like, people who would laugh at, you know, a joke about two straight guys and one of them's, you know, what if they're gay? No, haha, ha, I'm Shit, not gay.
0: that would be crazy yeah. if two straight guys were gay.
2: Yeah. What if he seems straight, but he's actually gay? <laughs> you know, that stuff, I'm just like, no, no that's yes. so stupid.
0: Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, everybody that you're involved with, yourself included, obviously, are fighting the good fight. And doing some crazy progressive things that are I think I'm very interested in and in not to, you know, put too much importance on this or that, but I think in, you know, ten years as people look back on New York's art and comedy scene around this time that we're in that the people that are leading the charge and the group that you're involved in, and it's you're not in a you're not in a union, but I mean simply the scene mm. that's happening, I, I think it'll be Historically recognized as a really big sea change in the way that comedy is understood, and the influence of different people writing for shows and things. I think it's. I, I hope know.
2: so. I hope it makes a difference, and I hope that what is can like very successful in a mainstream sense changes and doesn't, you know, rely on, you know, punching down mm-hmm. because it doesn't need to. And I also think that. There are, I mean, I, I don't know how to say it without sounding so, I guess, like cheesy, but I kid you not, every day, I think, oh, my God, I'm around the most talented people I've ever met in my life. Yeah. And and they're just, like, here, and we're just, like, doing this. I'm like, wow, one day people are going to, you know, and it's already started to happen with some people, where people are, you know, in a more mainstream sense, recognizing the caliber of their work, mm. if you will, um... And, and it's really, I mean, I get so excited when I think like, wow, where's like this person going to be mm-hmm. in in five years or in 10 years? Or...
0: Yeah. I think about that a lot too. Sometimes I, I, I mean, I tweeted about this a little while ago, very, uh, I felt very cheesy and dorky, but I pulled a bunch of my friend's books off the bookshelf and just took a picture of them and tweeted it. And I was like, my friends are so talented and beautiful. And this is crazy that, mm-hmm. All of these people make these things.
2: Yeah, and they're in my life. Mm -hmm. And they're my friends. Wow.
0: (laughs) That's beautiful, Anna. I think we're at time. I want to wrap it there.
2: Great. Positive note to end on. Thanks for having me. Very positive
0: note. Thank you for coming on. Um, And, you know, thanks for everything that you do and for introducing me to so many great people. Likewise. I hope that everybody make sure to follow what you're doing and congrats again on the writing gig on chris's show i'm looking forward to seeing the new season
2: thank you sean
0: okay thanks everybody